But if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, which in the church Bibles is page 984, and in the large print Bibles, page 1528. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. Well, some of you may remember the television program, uh, Tomorrow's World. Do you remember that? Uh, it was finished in about 2003. Uh, and on this program, uh, viewers were invited to have a sneak peek into what the world may be like with the technologies of tomorrow. Now, there were some new technologies that were predicted uh, that were, in fact, uh, a hit in the future. Uh, on tomorrow's world, uh, the personal computer, uh, the mobile phone, and chip and pin were just a few uh, that were shown many years before they actually came about. And in fact, all of those things were actually shown in the 60s and 70s. However, most of the technologies in tomorrow's world uh, never made it to the light of day. And if you want to see some funny videos from that period, uh, you can go on YouTube and look at all the things that flopped. And you can see the one on the mobile phone, which is really uh, quite amusing because he's got a, an old cordless phone that he's walking around with uh, speaking on. And it's just such an amazing thing, which we take for granted now. Well, tonight, uh, we get a glimpse into tomorrow's world. Uh, a world where we see Jesus as king in all his glory. Now, this is not a prediction. Uh, God doesn't make predictions. Uh, he is the God over all history. Uh, what he says will happen will happen. Uh, there's no ifs or buts. God is God, and he knows the future. But Jesus, in fact, has recently given us some words about the future in the previous chapter. If you look at Matthew 16 and verse 22, just a, a page back, um, Peter rebukes Jesus because Jesus has just told Peter that he is going to, in verse 21, uh, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He said this is what is going to happen. And then Jesus goes on to say that being a disciple means taking up our cross, literally coming to die. If we're going to follow in the footsteps of our Messiah, why would we expect to live any differently? We are expected to take up a cross, to come and die, and live fully for our Lord Jesus. We are invited to suffer. And all the disciples, well, not all of them, but most of them rather, they all died because they believed in Jesus. They were martyred. Why would anyone want to follow Jesus if he invites us to take up a cross? Well, he gave three incentives in, uh, the, in the end of Matthew chapter 16. Uh, three incentives to follow Jesus. They were eternal safety, eternal worthwhile, and eternal reward. And at the end of chapter 16, Jesus reassures the disciples that his plan is worth following. Take up your cross 
because it's going to be well worth even dying for me. And in chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus promises to give some reassurance to some of the disciples. He says that they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and that vision of Jesus is what we see tonight. We're going to see the Son of Man in his kingdom. And some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were able to experience that wonderful time as they see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what we're going to see is a glimpse into tomorrow's world where Jesus is in his glory as king of his kingdom. Now, tomorrow's world on TV was interesting but unpredictable. But glimpsing tomorrow's world in God's word here is invaluable and it is certain. It helps us live in today's world with hope and with reassurance. And the glimpse of the future is given as we see Jesus in the transfiguration. So let's read Matthew 17 and verses 1 to 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is God's word. Now, as we go through this passage, we're going to see uh, many allusions to the Old Testament appearances of God, especially to Moses. Jesus is appearing here in Matthew 17 as God does in the Old Testament, just like we saw as we read in Exodus. And the first thing that we need to do as we come to this passage is to look at his glory. Look at his glory. In verse 1, uh, we read, after six days. Now, that may just be a link to the previous section. So, six days after Jesus said some of the disciples would see him in his glory. 
But there are so many allusions to Exodus here that it's more likely that the six days is a reference to a time when Moses goes up on a mountain before the Lord makes a revelation to him about his law. Here's the verse, one of the verses we read earlier on in Exodus 24. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. You see? Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up the mountain, and six days after Jesus said they would see him in his glory, Jesus shows them. And up on this mountain in verse 2, we read, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, transfigured uh, means to change in appearance. So Jesus went from being a normal man, uh, and like in Isaiah where we read that he was, uh, he, he, had no, he, he was of no reputation, he had nothing about him, that was anything that you would be able to point him out in the street as Jesus by the way he looked. But here he's transfigured. Here, he is radically different. Now, in the Christmas hymn, uh, we uh, hark the herald angels sing. Uh, we have the line, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. We know that line, don't we? And what that line is telling us is that the Godhead was veiled in flesh. He wasn't appearing in his full glory. But here, as he's transfigured, it's, it's as if Jesus is removing the veil so that the Godhead shines through. So we wouldn't, that, that would not be the hymn, if the disciples knew John Wesley, that they would be singing on the Mount of Transfiguration. They would change the lines because the veil has been removed and the Godhead is shining through. And make no mistake here, this is an appearance of God. Because look at how he's described. We see that his face shone like the sun. Now again, this is like in Exodus where Moses spoke with God. Uh, listen to these words. Again, they'll appear on the screen uh, of, about Moses. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. So when Moses was standing before God, that glory of God uh, reflected off of him as he went down the mountain and people couldn't look at him. So they, they covered him up. So did Jesus look like he does here because he has been in God's presence? Well, no, this is more than what happened to Moses. Jesus doesn't just have, like Moses, a reflected glory in his face. Notice that in verse 2, his clothes became as white as light. So it doesn't just say only his face was like Moses' face. All of Jesus, not just his face, all of him is bright. And his clothes being white as light... It uh, reminds me of Psalm 104, verse 2, where we read, The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. So here is Jesus being dressed in light. 
because he's the Lord. Jesus is not just a reflection of God's glory here, but is, as he's described in the book of Hebrews, the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. Jesus is removing the veil to reveal his deity. This is God. And all this is emphasized in verse 3 by the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the mountain, talking with Jesus. Now, why, out of all the characters in the Old Testament that could have appeared with Jesus, uh, do these two appear on the mountain? Well, there's a few reasons why. Uh, It's likely that Moses and Elijah were here. Um, Or rather, three three reasons that are the likely reasons why they were there. Uh, First of all, these men, Moses and Elijah, are linked to the Messiah's coming. That's the first uh, reason. These men are linked to the Messiah's coming. Just as, uh, so Jesus has spoken about the end of time. So he said in chapter 16, verse 28, about seeing the Son of Man coming in his glory. Both Moses and Elijah are linked to God's plan for the Messiah. So in the case of Moses, Before he died, this is what Moses said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Here is Jesus, the prophet from Israel, who we will see shortly, we are told, listen to him. There's a a very obvious link when we're told, listen to him, to the prophet that we are told in Deuteronomy to listen to. And for Elijah, well, he was expected to come to prepare the way before the Messiah. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the the Lord. So Moses and Elijah, or ones like them, were expected to come before the end of time. And here they are, in this vision of Jesus in his glory, they are with him. You see? For the disciples, this is reassurance that Jesus is the Messiah who is promised because he is with those very people who are linked to the promises about him being the Messiah. So that's the first reason. Moses and Elijah are linked to the coming of the Messiah. The second reason is more linked to the fact that Jesus is revealing himself here to be God. The second reason is that both Moses and Elijah saw the glory of God on mountains. So both Moses and Elijah had visions of the glory of the Lord up on mountains in the Old Testament. And here they are seeing that same glory again. This would give the disciples reassurance that Jesus is God. They would see Moses and Elijah there, seeing this glory, and they would be thinking, of course, they know what this is like. They've been here before. And the third reason is that these two men may well represent the law and the prophets. So Moses was the great lawgiver and Elijah the greatest prophet. They may represent the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And them being here 
is a way of showing how all of that Old Testament points to Jesus himself. So Moses and Elijah being with Jesus affirms that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is fully and truly God in his glory, and that he is the one who the promises of the Old Testament all pointed to. So there's a clear picture here of the glorified Jesus, given to reassure his disciples that he will return in glory. We have a picture of tomorrow's world where Jesus has no veil. He is fully glorified. Well, if it ended at the first three verses, we may say, well, so what do I do with this? How should I respond? Well, God tells us how to respond to this vision of Jesus in his glory. He tells us to listen to his word. But before he does that, verse 4 shows us Peter's response to this vision. Peter says that it is good for the disciples uh, to be here. Uh, It's a wonderful experience for them, which it would be. But what does Peter do with this wonderful vision? Well, he responds with an idea. He wants to build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Now, to our ears, this may sound a bit weird. He sees Jesus in his glory, and he wants to have a camp out. But again, this isn't Peter's desire to go camping with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. These are Old Testament allusions here. The tabernacle, which is what he was wanting to build, three tabernacles or booths, uh, was the place in the Old Testament where Israel worshipped God. And crucially, the tabernacle was the place in Exodus that was built where God's glory dwelled in the holy place in the tabernacle. In fact, the reference earlier to six days, after six days God then spoke, was when God was giving Moses instructions on how to build that tabernacle. So Peter, seeing the glory, wants to build the tabernacle. And so Peter says to Jesus, if you wish, meaning he wants to do the right thing, but he ends up doing the wrong thing. Because he wants to build tabernacles, places for God's glory, For Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. He puts them all on that same level. He's compromising the uniqueness of Jesus in his thinking. And in verse 5, before Peter can go any more wrong, uh, he's interrupted. It says, while Peter, while he was still speaking. I love that. Peter's just... He's just cut off, and God's just said, I've had enough of this, I'm just going to show you. (laughs) And he shows the right response. And that's grace, by the way, isn't it? When God just stops us in our tracks and shows us what's right. Notice verse 5. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
A cloud is a common way in the Old Testament of God appearing. He came in a pillar of cloud in Exodus, in a thundery cloud on Mount Sinai. In 1 Kings chapter 8, he comes in a cloud to Elijah. But two particular Exodus appearances are of interest here. First of all, in Exodus 19, God appears in a cloud and promises to speak with Moses. And the voice of God coming from the cloud would give reassurance to Israel that Moses was God's man, that Moses was God's prophet. Look at Exodus chapter 19. (coughs) I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that, here is the reason, the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. You see, he was going to speak from the cloud to Moses so, so that they would know this is my prophet. Secondly, we have, as we have already seen in Exodus 24, when the cloud covered Mount Sinai and after six days God spoke, this speaking was an important announcement about how he would reveal himself to Israel in the tabernacle. He says, for six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Here in Matthew, the bright cloud is very obviously God speaking. He both gives reassurance to the disciples that Jesus is God's mouthpiece to listen to and that Jesus is God. We see this in the voice from the cloud. Let's break that voice uh, down, which is, uh, <coughs> sorry, which is found in verse 5. God says, this is my son. So Jesus is the son of God. That's a declaration of of deity. It speaks of Jesus' essence. Jesus is God. God the son. He's the son that God says, whom I love. That's a, a love that a, a, the love of a father for his son. It's a unique love. He loves Jesus uniquely. With him, I am well pleased. The father is pleased with Jesus. This pleasure is with Jesus' person, but also, and this is key to understanding what's going on in this part of Matthew, he's pleased with Jesus' plan. Because in chapter 16, Jesus has shared his plan with his disciples, I'm going to die. And the disciples did not like the plan. No, Lord, this can't happen. You can't die. But God's saying, I'm pleased with the plan. The plan that Jesus is talking about is my plan. You may not like the plan, but this is my plan. You may face suffering in the plan, But this is my plan. I'm pleased with the plan. Everything about Jesus, all he is, all he says, all he does, all his plans are pleasing to God the Father. Now these words 
were said at the baptism too. And the disciples are given another reminder here. But they're also given an application. Look at the end of verse 5. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus has spoken of his plans to go to Jerusalem that the disciples did not like. He has spoken of the incentives for following Jesus that the disciples had to trust. He has given them reassurance of his future glory with the transfiguration. These words were not always easy to believe. God's word isn't always easy to follow. But when we see Jesus glorified here and we hear the approval of his father, the response is to listen, even when we don't understand, even when we don't like what we're being told. This is the voice of God. Listen to his word. And listen is not just hearing the words. It is taking them in and living them out. It's, it's active listening. Now we'll think about how we do that in a moment. But before that, notice that what happens to the disciples when they hear this voice. Look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Peter no longer feels the need to say something or do anything. He and the other disciples are just flat out terrified. Now again, in the Old Testament, when God appears on Mount Sinai in Exodus, God's people were terrified. When we face God, it is terrifying because he's a glorious and holy God. God is not just a, he's not a cuddly bear, right? He's almighty God. Terror is a right response. And yet, we have seen Jesus as this God. And look what he does in verse 7. But Jesus came. Isn't that lovely? There's the terror of God. Almighty God. They're flat out terrified. But Jesus comes and he touches them. And he tells them, get up. Don't be afraid. God is terrifying. But Jesus brings us to God and enables us to stand and not be afraid. And Jesus does that ultimately by the plan he talked about earlier in Matthew 16. He goes to Jerusalem. He suffers and dies to pay for our sin, that sin which makes us unable to stand before God. And when we are forgiven by trusting that Jesus has paid for our sin, we can stand before God as forgiven people. That's wonderful, isn't it? And in verse 8, we see that it wasn't Moses and Elijah that helped them up. It was Jesus alone. Notice that in verse, verse 8, they saw no one except Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they had gone from the scene. They're left with only Jesus. And there's a point being made here by Matthew and by the other gospel writers that write of this transfiguration. The point is that Jesus is the one who Moses and Elijah point to. Jesus is the unique Son of God with a plan to save us and to reward us for following him. Only Jesus. Well, what we've seen so far is a revelation of who Jesus is that gives reassurance that he is the King who will come in glory. 
and the response is to listen to him. And that's such a, a helpful application because there are so many other voices that are calling us to listen to them. People that we want to like us are calling us to follow them and do their things. The culture and the media, our sinful desires are all shouting, listen to us. We'll show you how to live. Live our way. They're all shouting at us to live their way, but it's the voice of Jesus that we need to listen to. The voice that speaks the word of God. But also this passage shows us that in the end, all those other voices will be shut up because Jesus is the king. This passage gives us reassurance that following Jesus is the best way because graciously he has, he has given us a glimpse of who he really is, unveiled. The son of man coming in his kingdom. This should give us hope and reassurance that listening to Jesus is worthwhile we can tell those other voices to shut up because we can say, I want to listen to this glorious king and follow him. It's helpful when we're tempted to listen to other voices to come back to this very passage and to see Jesus in his glory and to remind ourselves, why would I listen to anyone else but Jesus? Well, in verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone about this until he's been raised from the dead. But why does, he, why does he do that? This is an amazing experience. You'd want to go and share it with everybody. Well, probably the reason is because of the misunderstanding that it would cause people. The greatest sign, actually, of Jesus being God's Messiah was not the transfiguration, but the resurrection. He wanted his disciples to be looking for that and to accept the plan of salvation that he had given that involved him dying and rising again. And for us, yes, we need to tell people of the coming uh, Son of Man, the, 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 the fact that Jesus is coming to judge the world. But without the resurrection, these things wouldn't even be taking place. Without seeing Jesus conquer death, the promise of heaven has no basis whatsoever. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to include the transfiguration in our gospel presentations, but the resurrection is the real focus. This gives us hope when we believe that the resurrection is true. So far then, the disciples have seen Jesus in his glory. They know that they should listen to him, especially his plan for his death and resurrection. They have seen that Jesus is the Messiah, but they still don't grasp the plan fully. They've got some questions about the order of things. And we see that in verses 9 to 13. And even though they don't understand everything, what Jesus is asking of us in these final few verses is to live in his plan. Their question is found in verse 10. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? In the Old Testament book of Malachi, we read how Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So here's where that is found in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children 
and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The disciples had seen that Jesus is the Messiah, but they also saw Elijah on the mountain. This means in their minds he, he, that Elijah hadn't come, but the Messiah already has. In other words, the order seemed to go against what the rabbis taught and what Malachi had prophesied. Well, Jesus replies in verse 11 by saying that the teaching they've received is right. Elijah comes and will restore all things. This means he will usher in the Messiah who will save his people. But in verses 12 and 13, Jesus explains what Malachi means. Notice in verse 12 that it begins with these words, but I tell you. Now, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, those words should be familiar from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus interpreted the Old Testament law. So he would say, you have heard it have been said, but I tell you, where he gives the right explanation of what was meaning in the law. Here, we see Jesus explaining what was going on in Malachi's prophecy. But I tell you, Jesus tells them that Elijah has already come, but he was not recognized and was killed, which is what some people wanted to happen. In verse 13, we see that the disciples realize he was talking about John the Baptist. Now, Jesus had told them in chapter 11, verse 14, that John was the fulfillment of Elijah coming, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah coming. And Jesus reminds them again of the plan of how he will save his people by reminding them that in the same way that John was killed, so too will I die. People aren't going to like me either. I am going to be put to death. There is going to be suffering. There is going to be the cross before the crown. What Jesus said in, verse six, in chapter 16 and verse 21 will take place. The last time Jesus talked of his death, Peter rebuked him. But here, we see that those disciples, while not understanding fully, hear the plan of salvation, and with the end victory in view now, after the transfiguration, they trust him that little bit more. They have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They know the glorious end that is coming. And it reassures them in the difficult days to come. Jesus is the king who has a plan for our lives and for the whole universe. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 tells us how he is working out all things according with his will. Now, some parts of the plan that God has, we understand. We understand the plan of salvation. Jesus made it clear that he has died for our sins and risen from the dead, we know how to be saved. Sometimes God allows us to understand parts of his plan here and now. Like where he explains about Elijah and John the Baptist. Sometimes God allows us to understand what's going on. But sometimes 
we will never understand, at least this side of heaven. Tragedies strike, don't they? We have no idea why God allows certain things to happen. Some things just don't make sense. We've experienced that this week. We, were, we buried uh, a young lady who, who committed suicide. No, it, there's no explanation for these things. It's just a tragedy. We can't understand why those things happen. But we know that it's part of God's plan. And we're to live in that plan. But while God doesn't always answer why, the lesson of this passage is he gives us a far more important answer than why. He shows us who. He shows us who is Jesus. He shows us what he has promised. He has shown us that Jesus is the king of glory and has saved us for a heavenly destiny. And that's what makes this passage so helpful. This wonderful vision of Jesus is not just some prediction of tomorrow's world. This is an eternal reality that gives us hope for today. And Peter, who was with Jesus on this mountain, in one of his letters, tells us how this vision gives us reassurance. In 2 Peter chapter 1, and verses 16 to 18, this is what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says that the, the coming of the Lord Jesus is not a cleverly devised story. Why? Because he's seen it. And he's heard the voice of God declaring it. And so as we close, there are two really big applications that enable us to be reassured of God's plan when we don't understand it and when we find it difficult. The first is, look at who Jesus is. He is the glorious God, the King. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who has all things worked out. We don't understand why, but we have been shown who. And friends, that is actually far better, isn't it? Knowing why may not be helpful at all. Knowing who means everything. Because the second application after looking at who Jesus is, is to look at the victorious end that we see here. He has shown us that although the days may be tough, and the plan may be suffering, it ends with glory. And we can be part of that if we trust in him and listen to his voice. We may not understand the why, but let us grasp hold of and focus on the who, Jesus, the King. Because that's where our hope lies. It's, it, that's where it was with Peter. His hope was there because he'd seen it. 
And when we doubt and we, we, we're wondering, is God even there? Let us turn back to these words and say, there he is. Peter saw him. And by amazing grace of God, he's shown us as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing vision of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have, in your amazing grace, shown us who you are and have shown us a glorious end that are for all those who trust in you. Give us the hope that these words show us. May we know it to be true in our hearts. Help us to trust in Jesus and to listen to his voice, whatever your plans for us may hold. In Jesus' name, amen.